0: Why don't we take a minute and ask the Lord's blessing on session nine. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to study your word, and we ask that you'd help us finish the night strong as we study the life of your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we're getting into the meat of the life of Christ, and I love this section as we get into the Gospel of Luke a little deeper. We begin to see Jesus making a statement about himself. And when we talk about the miracles, we're always going to ask, What does this teach us about the authority of the king? What does this teach us about the nature of the kingdom? What does this teach us about the king himself? And we're going to see the king has authority over all sorts of things. Jesus is living in Capernaum, paragraph 42, and we're going to see that now in chapter 4 of the Luke Gospel, verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he began to teach the people. Underline Sabbath, because a lot of these miracles... Jesus is going to intentionally do on the Sabbath. Verse 32, they were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with what? Authority. They weren't amazed at what he said. They were amazed at how he said it. Very important. Because in the Jewish uh, world, even to this day, the rabbis get up and they quote Talmud law. Talmud law is like a lawyer's case law. And they will often say, look, rabbi so-and-so, says in the name of rabbi such and such that this is the meaning of the passage. Jesus did not ever do that. He claimed to have the authority to himself to preach. In fact, uh, he had the authority to do a lot of things. Verse 4, um, chapter 4 and verse 3 of Luke. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had, had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, what did he say? Ha! Which in Hebrew is translated, Ha! And any other language, I guess. Leave us alone, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know, demonic activity is heightened at three different times in Scripture, and when Jesus is on the earth, is one of those three times. God is about to do something very big, and Satan goes into overdrive, and so do his demons. But Jesus rebuked him. Silence come out of him, then... After the demon threw the man down in their midst, he came out of him without hurting him. Now, why did he silence the demon? Because if the demon gives credit to the person of Christ, he loses credit with the Jewish leadership. Okay? If you ever have to go to court and have a character witness, you don't want a demon. You want someone with a good reputation. So here and most of the time, Jesus does not allow the demons to speak about who he is, but they knew who he is. He is the Holy One of God. Verse 6, they were all amazed and began to say to one another, what's happening here? For with, underline this, authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So the news about him spread into all areas of the region. Now what does this show us about the king? He has authority over the demons, and the kingdom he offers will play no part in the kingdom of Satan. And it shows us that the king doesn't want us to be involved with anything demonic. So again, a very important miracle. And it's also important because of the methodology. The rabbis were gifted by God to do exorcisms. And we'll see that come up from time to time where actually people will request Jesus to do a rabbinical exorcism. And the rabbis would go to a person possessed and they would pray over him and they would get the name of the demon and they would plug it into a formula and ask God's mercy to cast it out. This is the event where Jesus says to the demon, what is your name? And the demon says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Remember that? That's the Jewish method. Here he's not using the Jewish method. He has his own authority, his own power. Verse 37, so the news about him spread into all areas of the region. Now, paragraph 43, we're going to see another miracle of authority, not only over demons but over sickness. Verse 38 of the Mark account, the Luke account, after Jesus left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he stood over her and commanded the fever and it left her. Now look at the difference. Here's where a harmony is kind of fun between the Matthew and the Mark and the Luke account. Matthew is writing to the Jews to show that Jesus is their what? King, look at the Matthew account, verse 15 of Mark of Matthew 8. He touched her hand in the fever left. That's the king touching authority gone. Look at the Mark account. Mark is writing to the Romans to show Jesus is the perfect servant. Look at verse 31 in the Mark account. He came up and raised her up by gently taking her hand. But Luke is writing as a doctor, and the doctor is interested in how does he do it medically? Well, He commanded the fever and it left her. And it's a twofold miracle here. Not only does he heal the mother-in-law, but after she loses the fever, look at what she does. It says, immediately she got up and began to serve them. I don't know about you, but when I get a fever, I'm, I'm a wuss. I want Gwen to come along and pat me on the head and say, there, there, you'll be fine. Of course, my wife used to be a nurse in another life, and she has a very high threshold for pain in other people, especially me. In my family, unless you're sick near death, you don't get much compassion. And we're babies, we know. But this woman gets up, and even though she's wiped out from the, fe- the fever, she's immediately made strong enough to serve them. The word there "serve" is the word to become a deacon. It's a good biblical word. She deacons them. Verse 40: As the sun was setting, all those who had any relatives sick with various diseases, brought them to Jesus, and he placed hands on every one of them and healed them. Now, why did they wait till the sun was setting? What day of the week was it? Sabbath. And in the Jewish methodology, you don't do miracles of healing on the Sabbath. So Jesus is going to do a lot of miracles of healing on the Sabbath. Where does it say in the Old Testament you should not heal on the Sabbath? Very good. It never says that. But they're good Jews, living under the authority of the Pharisees. And they come, and it says, He placed His hands on every one of them and healed them. Verse 41, Demons also came out of many, crying out, You are the Son of God, but He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that He was the Christ. Now, just one other comment as an aside here, and I'm not picking on anybody, and I surely don't want to dump on anybody, but there's a difference between those who are sick here and those who are demon-possessed. And I have friends in this town who are very sincere people about this. They think every sickness comes from a demon. I have seen sickness, and I have seen demon possession, and they're different. And I have had people come to a hospital room and say, if you had more faith, Satan would leave and you'd be healed. I don't find that in the Scripture. And here's a, there's a distinction between those who are sick and those who have demonic issues, and Jesus is able to deal with both of them. And again, what is our plan? What does this teach us about the authority of the king? He has authority over... Uh, the fever. He has authority to institute a kingdom of wholeness and wellness, and it teaches us that he is a kind and gracious person. Uh, even those of you that don't like your mother-in-law, he healed a mother-in-law here. You're going to just have to deal with it, okay? Now, we get to the next paragraph, paragraph 44, and uh, we're going to find another miracle of authority. Here is his authority to do what? Preach. But before Jesus preaches, Look at the Mark account here, Mark 1, 35. Then Jesus got up early in the morning while it was still very dark and went out to a deserted place, and there he spent time doing what? In prayer. I love that. This is the day in the Mark gospel, which is the busiest recorded day in the life of Jesus. If you look at Mark 1, you will lose your breath. Miracle, 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 miracle. And yet he gets up early and he prays. And if Jesus has to do that, how much more must I? In the Luke account, same thing is mentioned, but in Luke 4, 43, it says, But Jesus said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns too. They said in the last verse, they tried to keep him from leaving. He said, There are other places I've got to go, for that is what I was sent to do. So he continued to preach in the synagogues of Judea. Now, the Matthew account gives us a broader range of geography. In the Matthew account, verse 24 of Matthew 4 says, a report when him, uh, went about him through Syria. Syria is north of Jerusalem. It's sadly where the battles are going on today. Up here is Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. And then in the Matthew account, verse 25, large crowds followed from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So all over, Jesus is doing miracles, and we're not told all the miracles. But we can be sure that at this time in his life, the miracles involve authority. You with me? Now, the next miracle is his authority over defilement, paragraph 45. This is one of the biggies, and you'll get it why. You'll get why. It's the healing of a leper. Leprosy was the only defilement that you could get from a living human person. All other defilements had to do with death and eating the wrong food, but you could catch defilement, you could be defiled by touching a leper. Remember the movie Ben-Hur? That's kind of how it was. There's still some leprosy around. When Gwen was a child, she used to visit leprosariums with her dad in Africa. You can ask her. We now have medicine that keeps most of it from spreading, but on In the time of Jesus, on a windy day, you wouldn't come within 100 feet of a leper. And on a day when the wind was not blowing, you wouldn't get within 6 feet of a leper. It would make you unclean. And so in the Luke account, chapter 5 and verse 12, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came to him who was what? Say it. How much leprosy did he have? He was covered with leprosy. When Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he bowed down with his face, to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Wow. That's pretty amazing. I don't know how the leper knew this. He apparently knew something about Jesus. Verse 13, he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, to be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. In every one of the Gospels, Matthew 8, 3 Mark 1 41 and Luke 5 13 the emphasis is that Jesus touched the leper under the Jewish system of theology he is now rendered unclean and then he does something very interesting and don't miss this because this is unique to the gospels then he ordered the man the leper to tell no one but commanded him go and show yourself to a priest and bring the offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded as a testimony to them that interesting. In other words, don't stay around here. Go to Jerusalem and give the required offerings for the cleansing of a leper. Now here's why this is a big deal. Okay? Those of you who complain about me not giving the reference, Leviticus thirteen and fourteen are two entire chapters in the Old Testament which talk about what to do after a leper has been healed in order to cleanse him ceremonially. Leviticus 13 and 14 had never been used in this way. Every rabbinical student that went to study in Hebrew school had to memorize Leviticus 13 and 14. Your kids ever say to you, "Why am I learning this? I'll never use this." That was true here. I had a kid I coached at Santa Fe one time. He, he, hes If I said the guy's name, you'd know him, it's his son. He said, why do I have to study geometry? What am I going to do, grow up and become a geometrist? Why am I going to study Leviticus 13 and 14? We've never used it. And so here's the deal. In the Jewish system of theology, there were three miracles. This is the first. That I'm going to call messianic miracles. That the Jewish people knew about, but they had never happened And therefore, the rabbis taught, when Messiah comes, he will do this miracle. Jesus, by the way, does all three. It had never been done. And what what had never been done? The healing of a leper had never happened after the building of the temple and the giving of the law. Should actually put that in the other order. The Healing of a leper had never occurred after the giving of the law and the building of the temple. The healing of a Jewish man had never occurred after the giving of the law and the building of the temple. Got that? The healing of a Jewish man had never happened after the giving of the law and the building of the temple. Therefore the Jews said when the Messiah comes he'll do it. Jesus does it. Nobody denies that he does it. You would go to the the temple and you spent a whole day giving sacrifices and then you spent a week being observed and on the eighth day they would anoint you with oil and declare you were clean. It's a big deal. It's never been done. Where's that again? Leviticus, what? That a girl. Verse 15, But the news about Jesus spread even more and large crowds were gathering together to hear him and be healed of their illnesses. Yet Jesus himself frequently withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. You see, for Jesus to be accepted, he was going to have to be accepted by the leadership. And that's why he says, Go show yourself to a priest, go to the temple and deal with the Jewish leadership, and let's see what happens now that I've done a messianic miracle. And that's why the next event is logically important. Paragraph 46. Notice the title Jesus' authority to forgive what? Sin. Verse 17 Now in one of those days while he was teaching there were Pharisees teachers of the law sitting nearby who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with him to heal Now why do the Pharisees come all the way up to Capernaum from every village of Judea down here Because Jesus had just done what a messianic miracle And now the Sanhedrin is going to do to Jesus what they did to John during the first week of ministry. They're going to send out an investigation party to simply observe. No questions yet. We're just going to observe and go back to the Sanhedrin and report. Remember that from our time last week. Verse 18, Luke 5. Just then some men showed up carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. They were trying to bring him in and place him before Jesus. Since they found no way to carry him in because of the crowd they went up on the roof and let down let him down on a stretcher through the roof tiles right in the front of Jesus when Jesus saw their faith he said friend your sins are forgiven now, I love this event I wish I could make a cartoon of this you got four guys i got to think they're from michigan and they got a guy who can't walk hey let's take him let's take old ernie over to, to, to capernaum and, and get him to the new rabbi he healed the leper, maybe he'll heal Ernie. And so they get there, and it's packed. And what kind of people are packing the place? The Sanhedrin guys are there. Oh. And so, what are we going to do? We've got to get them to Jesus. Let's climb on the roof. So they get on the roof. And again, if I'm making a cartoon, I remember the old drill bits? They drill a hole in the roof. And the dust is falling down right in front of Jesus. And the owner of the house is sitting up front saying, This is my house. What in the world are you guys doing? And then they take a tile off and then they take two tiles off because they got to let Ernie down on his bed. He's not going to come down hanging. I love this. And I'm sure this. like, you remember like in a cartoon where the eyeball goes over here and they go over there and then they cut a hole in the roof and here he comes. And the NIV says he came down right in their midst. Now if you're one of the Pharisees, how are you feeling right now? There's an unclean guy in the middle of the room. What are you doing up there? And the owner of the house, you're ruining my roof. What are you doing up there? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Really? That's the best you got? Well, that's pretty good. Verse 21, then the experts in the law and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they're right about that. When Jesus perceived their hostile thoughts, he could read their minds because he was God, by the way. He said to them, why are you raising objections within yourselves? See, they weren't allowed to ask questions yet. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? Now, which is easier to say? How many think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven? How many think it's easier to say stand up and walk? it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to verify that did not you break your leg not long ago was it you we could hope (laughs) let's suppose Aaron shows up and he's got a cast on his leg and he walks in here and I say Aaron sorry about your leg your sins are forgiven no biggie we don't have any way to know if Aaron's sins are forgiven or not but let's suppose I say Aaron Your multi-fractured leg is now healed. Go run around the building three times. Now that's hard to say because we're going to know if I'm telling the truth. So Jesus is going to do that which is harder to validate his statement. He does the harder thing to prove that that he's God who can forgive sins. Verse 23, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk. But so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, stand up and take your stretcher and go home. And immediately he stood up before them, picked up the stretcher he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Oh, by the way, what are you thinking if you're Ernie coming down through the roof? I love this. And then one of the great understatements in all of the Bible. An astonishment seized them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen incredible things today. I like the, the New American Standard is my, my favorite teaching Bible. says, we have seen remarkable things today. Imagine you're a Pharisee, and you've been on the road, and you've traipsed your way up to Capernaum, and you've seen this hole in the roof, and here comes the unclean man, and this young rabbi heals him and sends him on his way, and... And then you walk all the way home and your wife says, Hi, honey, how was your day? Yeah, we saw remarkable things today. Jesus has the authority not only to heal defilement, but to forgive sins. And they are right. Only, only God can forgive sins. People say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yeah, he did. Over and over and over again. If you get the Jewish part, that's all he's doing here. See, what does this tell you about the king? He has the authority to forgive sins. What does this tell you about the nature of the kingdom? It's going to be a place with no sin. What does this tell you about the, the nature of the king? He, he loves us enough to forgive our sins. Now, just one or two more things. Luke five twenty-seven, His authority over men. After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named... Levi, writing there Matthew, he's going to be called Matthew after this, he writes Matthew. We should have studied it out of Matthew's gospel. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 9-9, that's why the harmony is so good, Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. follow me, he said, and he got up and followed him. That's pretty cool. There are two kinds of tax collectors in Israel. One was your standard tax collector, which was your income tax. This was a guy who was at a tax booth, which was the worst kind of all. It was the customs official. They could, at their own discretion, tax you any amount on anything you owned. They were so evil in the culture that the Pharisees taught that they could not go to heaven. They could not repent. They were consigned to hell with the worst of the dregs of the earth. They served Rome and gouged their own people of Israel. Matthew was a Jew who at the time is hating Israel, and he's a traitor to Israel, and he's gouging the common people, and Jesus says, hey, follow me. And I love this. Look at the Luke account. And he got up and followed him, leaving everything behind. Does that sound familiar? When Jesus told Peter, do what? Follow me, what did he do? He left everything behind. Now, Peter and Matthew are opposite ends of every scale you can think of. Peter's a blue-collar guy. Matthew's a tax collector. Peter's a a Jew among Jews. Levi or Matthew's a, a traitor to the system. Peter hopes he's going to get to heaven, and Matthew has given up on the idea. But I love what Matthew does. Verse 29, then Levi gave a great banquet in his house for Jesus. He holds a conversion party. There was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them, but, there's our word, but, the Pharisees and the experts in the law complained to the disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, apparently, there was time for them to go back to the Sanhedrin and come back again and find Jesus and begin stage two of the investigation. These are the specific questions we've got. Question number one, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well don't need a physician, those you Pharisees, but those who are sick do. In other words, the tax collectors. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Question two comes up in the next paragraph, 48. Luke five thirty-three. they said to him, John's disciples frequently fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours continue to eat and drink. And here's the deal. We got the first question down. Why are you dealing with the sinners? Jesus loves sinners. Jesus is called a friend of sinners over and over and over. And he never says, oh, I'm not. He loves the sinners. That's why he came. Secondly, why don't your disciples fast often? In the Jewish tradition, everybody fasted one day a week. The Pharisees fasted two days a week. That was often. And here's the answer to the question by the Sanhedrin. Verse 34 you cannot make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? See, I'm coming. I'm the groom. John the Baptist is my best man, we know. But while I'm here, the wedding is a time for joy and celebration, not fasting. Verse 35, the days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them. At that time, they will fast. Jesus isn't going to be with the disciples forever. But third, he also told them a parable, and I love this, and we're going to close with this. No one tears a patch from an old garment and sews it on a, uh, from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. If he does, he will have torn the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. I'm wearing jeans tonight because my wife told me I could. If I were cool, I'd have holes in my jeans, but I'm not young enough to be that cool. But if you had a hole in your jeans back when I was a kid, your mom would get a piece of denim from another pair of jeans and she would patch it. I went to church and school with patches on my knees for years. But if you take a new piece of denim and you sew it on an old pair of jeans and it goes through the wash, what happens to the pair of pants? Tears. Jesus is not coming to patch up the old system. That's the point of the first illustration. He's not coming to patch up Judaism. And he takes it a step further. Verse 37, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Again, a wineskin was the skin of a lamb or a goat, and they would stitch it up tightly, and around the neck they would put a spout mechanism And you would put new wine into a new wineskin, and the wineskin maintained its elasticity so that as the wine fermented, it could expand and contract. When the elasticity was gone from the skin, you would then turn that old wineskin into a water bottle. Because if you took new wine and you put it into an old wineskin and it fermented and expanded, what would happen? It would burst. Jesus is saying simply this. I am not coming to put new wine into an old wineskin. I'm not trying to rejuvenate the old Jewish system. It'll break. And then he says, no one, verse 39, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for he says what? The old is good enough. Now who is saying the old is good enough in the setting? It's the Pharisees. They have been sent from the Sanhedrin to investigate Jesus to find what's wrong with him. They have the old wine. They want the old way. They want the old pair of jeans. Jesus isn't coming to patch up the old system. He's coming to offer a completely new way of life. And that's why the new birth is necessary. We go back to our first session of the night. The Pharisees will always desire the old and always reject the new. So, what do you do with that? Jesus gives us a whole new way to live. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We can live with the assurance that we have eternal life if we've believed in Jesus, we can leave everything behind if we believe in Jesus. And to believe simply means to entrust my life completely and entirely to him. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love for us. And we thank you that he did not come to fix an old system, but to offer us the opportunity to drink new wine. And we pray that as we learn more about him, we would learn how to walk with him and serve him because he is indeed our God. He has the authority over traditions, the authority to call us into full-time service, the authority to forgive our sin, the authority over defilement, the authority over sickness, and ultimately over demons and death. And we're thankful that we serve a Savior who has the right to rule in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen.